Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 130, Buiti Benafi, bitches, and thank you for listening. <laughs> Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No! There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, <laughs> allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm-hmm. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. And, uh, well, Beth, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Baljeet Singh Buttar, a member of an Indo-Canadian gang in the Vancouver area of British Columbia. BC! (laughs) I'm not from there. Uh, It's British Columbia. Is that where your sister lives? Uh, No, she lives in uh, Alberta. Okay. But uh, she did live in British Columbia. She lived in Vancouver. She went to school there. Oh. Oh, smarty so, pants yeah. alert. Uh, well, uh, before we get into it, how you doing? 
I'm doing good. So um, we've been really, really busy. So we decided we need a break. So heads yes. up. We, We're yes. taking a break in August. Mm-hmm. We'll still be dropping episodes on Thursdays. Uh, they're just going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And hopefully uh, by doing this, we'll be able to catch our breath, maybe get caught up over our break on some administrative stuff we do behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even get some new merch out there for you. So Yeah, definitely, definitely. It all um, takes time, and we don't have a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> Please, Lord, send me a clone. More time. <laughs> uh, send me more hours in the day. Yeah. Um, so our back catalog is uh, available. We also um, drop bonus episodes once a week for our patrons. Um, and so if you want access to those, we'll be giving you a little taste over the break of the some of the bonus content that we put out. We also do um, Zooms with our listeners every now and then for the Patreon. So um, uh, stay tuned. We will be back. But in the meantime, um, um, we are going to get a little break. Hey, speaking of needing a break, um, I shaved my head a couple days ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> was that a good reaction for you? It was. I love it. Uh, <laughs> woo. Yes, I did it. I, wow. I, I've had locks. Um, some people say dreadlocks. I try not to use that because the dread is sounds dreadful um, <laughs> and uh, racist. So I have, have been growing my locks for 10 years. And I just, you know, I tried to change it up. I, I put in some box braids and they were long and fun and woo, hot girl summer. But then I was, I took them out and I just was like, no mas. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with this I'm done. hair. Yeah, and it's it's just hair. You know, it grows back, uh, and it's just been liberating, uh, not having to get up and do it. Wow. Um, I love. I can't it. wait to see it. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> my mom was like. Have you prepared yourself for what your employer might say? (laughs) Well, you have some wigs, too. (laughs) I do have wigs, but also there's all these crown acts that have come up around the country, making it um, against the law to uh, discriminate against black women for wearing their natural hair. Right. Um, Now, we don't have anything like that in Arizona, but I'm prepared. I've, oh, good. I've, good, good, got, good. I've got my receipts. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, uh, happy to be here. Let's get into the show further. We will hop on down to some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. <laughs> What's in that bag? Well, this is exciting. We got a voicemail from Jessica. Woo! Jessica! Yeah. So here it goes. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Deb. This is Jessica. I found y'all's podcast maybe at the beginning of 2021, probably late 2020. So y'all were a part of my pandemic. And I just wanted to let you guys know that I love you guys and I appreciate the show that you guys are putting out because, damn, I had never heard of so many of these people because they were people of color. And it's insanity in my point of view. I am a person of color. I am part African-American and I'm also part Mexican-American. So I have the best of two worlds. And knowing that there's so many people out there 
that are serial killers or just criminals in general of people of color that have been completely overlooked by a little thing called starts with R and it ends with ASM. So yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Love you guys. Bye. Thank you, oh. Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs> Yeah, and I wanted to mention that Jessica also has a podcast, and it's called Welcome to the Interweb. So check it out. Ooh, hello. Yeah. Podcaster alert. Uh, you love to see it. Um, we got some new patrons. Well, right on. one patron, Mary L., <laughs> and then we got a Kofi donation from Angela J. So nice. thank you both, Mary L. <laughs> and Angela J. Here yeah, we go. Thank you. Yeah. Hear your true crime tunes. La, 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 la. Mary showed love to Fruit Loops Pie. La, <laughs> la, la, la. Then you can't tell me nothing, right? Whoa, wee, wee, wee. And uh, I only, that's a Kanye song. And Kanye duped all of us. I stayed up all night, Thursday night, waiting for the Donda album to drop at midnight. And it did. It did not. They pushed the release to August 6th. Oh, my God. I still love Kanye, though. And I also love you, Mary L. So thank you. (laughs) Uh, Now, this is for Angela. Paid the cost to be the boss. Paid the cost to be the boss. She's Angela. Uh, Angela. (laughs) Bam, 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 bam. Don't do me no favors. That's my James Brown impression for you, Angela J. And I hope you all enjoyed your tunes. Now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts. People who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. We're back. And uh, remind us, who is our subject today, Beth? Our subject today is Baljeet Singh Buttar, who went by the nickname Bal. 
He was a member of an Indo-Canadian gang in the Vancouver area of British Columbia. And it's unknown how many people he killed, but more than one. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, So now we're going to get into some stats. And the truth is, there are no stats. I tried to go through this story and get an accurate number, and it was very, very challenging. Yeah. Uh, as Beth said, he definitely killed more than one person and arranged for the murders of more than one person. So yeah. that's that. Just pay attention. Now we're going to get into the setting. <laughs> Take us there, Beth. The setting is Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. The mm. greater Vancouver metropolitan area is located in the southwest corner of mainland British Columbia, covering an area of approximately 3,000 square kilometers or 1,800 miles. Currently, the population is about 2.5 million. Bigger than I thought. Now, the city of Vancouver is the metropolitan center surrounded by over 20 municipalities, each with its own local government. Our subject today was born in Richmond, British Columbia, one of these municipalities. Between 2011 and 2016, Richmond received the fourth largest number of recent immigrants. According to the 2016 census, about 37% of Richmond residents were Canadian by birth. 60% were immigrants, the remaining being non-permanent residents. In the Vancouver metropolitan area, Punjabi, a language from the Indo-Aryan language family, is the third most common mother tongue language after English and Chinese. Punjabi is also the name of the ethnic group associated with the Punjab region region in South Asia, specifically in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent presently divided between Pakistani Punjab and Indian Punjab. Sikhs, or people associated with Sikhism, an Indian Dharmic religion that originated in the Punjab region of India, form a majority of close to 58% in the modern-day Punjab, practiced by 16 million people there. And Sikhi is the fifth largest religion in the world. Did not know that. Didn't know that. There's a whole episode on United Shades of America on CNN about Sikhism. They wear turbans, very, very peaceful people. And the thing that I, I took away the most is that men and women are equal in Sikh. Um, oh, society, interesting. Um, which is pretty dope. Yeah. Uh, so the first Sikhs came to British Columbia from India on their way to Britain for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. In 1902, more Sikhs passed through Vancouver, headed for the coronation of Edward VII. In both cases, those traveling through were colonial Sikh soldiers who were, quote, well-received in Canada and admired for their exotic costumes and their military prowess, unquote. At the beginning of the 20th century, somewhere around 100 South Asians, mostly Sikhs, settled into the lower mainland of British Columbia. But rather than the initial positive interest the Anglo community had shown in the first transient encounters, white folks were not happy about South Asians actually settling there. We've seen how this goes. Yeah, uh, we've seen this before. Um, Those first settlers found themselves subjected to discrimination, disenfranchisement, and exclusion from certain professions. In 1907, a large number of Japanese immigrants arrived in Canada to work as contract laborers for Canadian corporations, which intensified anti-Asian sentiment on Canada's West Coast. Canada, y'all got some splaining to do. Very fresh. 
friendly, but also really racist. Yeah, kind of a garbage history. Yeah. <laughs> a rally organized by the Asiatic Exclusion League, like a whole league. Come again, a whole league, <laughs> a whole league to keep people out to Asiatic exclusion. Yeah. That's, now that's uh, not uh, something you see every day, and they no. are so shameless about it. Yeah, they're like in your face, like yeah, in, <laughs> in your face. <laughs> Woo! Yes, that. Yep. <laughs> so this rally organized by those people in Vancouver in 1907 escalated into a riot as thousands of people began to terrorize Chinese and Japanese residents of the city and destroy their property. It's interesting the use of the word riot um, from whatever source you got. Usually, when people of color are involved, it's a riot. Right. When it's white people, it's uprising or, or protest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this clearly is violence perpetrated upon the pe- the non the non white people. Yeah. Um, one difference between the Chinese, Japanese, and Indian settlers was that since Britain had colonized India, people from India were actually British subjects. And Queen Victoria had pledged citizenship to all people of the empire, regardless of race. This posed a problem for racist Canadians pursuing Uh-oh. restrictions on Indian immigration, since people from India had a legal status which allowed them freedom of movement around the British Empire, of which Canada was part. Let me guess. There's some legislative fuck shit <laughs> that's about to go yep. down. <laughs> you but, guessed it. <laughs> as per usual, white folks found a way around that. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> the the Continuous Journey Regulation was an amendment to the Immigration Act of 1908, prohibiting the landing of any immigrant that did not come to Canada by continuous journey from the country of which they were natives or citizens. Wow. Well, y'all tried it. Yeah. The government enacted this legislation in response to a report submitted by Deputy Minister of Labor, William Lyon Mackenzie King, investigating an influx of Asian laborers in Canada. And Mackenzie King's report also recommended restricting immigration from India. So I'm thinking of a little tune uh, from the Beauty and the Beast. We don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. Uh, and that's that's what's happening that's here. Remember, true. kill yeah. the beast. Kill the beast. Kill the beast. <laughs> uh, that's what happens with white people every time. Uh, so King noted that many South Asians in Canada were, quote, unemployed and impoverished, unquote. He attributed their circumstances to an incompatibility with Canadian climate and way of life rather than, you know, racism. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, dude, your racism is showing. (laughs) Hide it. The continuous journey regulation allowed the government to restrict both Indian and Japanese immigration without specifying exclusion on the basis of race, nationality, or ethnic origins. The only scheduled continuous journey from India to Canada was via steamship lines owned by the Canada Pacific Railway Company in India. On March 26, 1908, two months after the regulation was passed, the Canada Pacific Railway, under instruction from the government, issued a directive to its India offices disallowing further sales of through tickets from India to Canada. The continuous journey regulation was tested in 1914 by a group of 376 South Asian immigrants aboard the ship the Komagata Maru. Passengers aboard the vessel were denied the right to land in Canada and the ship was left anchored in a Vancouver coastal inlet for two months. No, no. Two 
months while negotiations were conducted. Oh my God, what a nightmare. I know. These negotiations ultimately failed and the vessel was quote unquote escorted out of the inlet by a Navy gunboat. Wow. That's nuts. Uh, So South Asian immigrants who did manage to settle in Canada were economically and socially marginalized, both by the state and by organized labor, each reinforcing and recirculating the other. And negative stereotyping was promoted through the media and by politicians. Marginalization and occupational channeling limited economic options for South Asians. Many Sikh immigrants were forced into the lumber and resource industries. Sikh immigrants were involved in some of the most demanding manual labor positions, such as in Canadian Pacific railway crews, farming, logging camps, and sawmills. But the media and politicians promoted a view that they were, quote, very slow and do not seem capable of hard, continuous exertion. Their diet is light and physically they are not adapted to the rigors of Canada, unquote. Okay, fuck you. You can fuck right off right now. (laughs) Right this instant. (laughs) South Asians were excluded from owning or renting agricultural land and forces within organized labor worked to eliminate South Asian immigrants from those industries and workplaces that afforded union pay and protection. Indo-Canadians or Canadians with ancestry from India have been prominent in the gang landscape in the Vancouver area for many years. Of note, when referring to Indo-Canadians, the term Indo-Canadian is often used interchangeably with South Asian and East Indian and includes many ethnicities which are not necessarily similar to each other in terms of their historical experiences, cultural practices, religion, or language. It is a vast group, absolutely not a monolith. No. The annual report of the Canadian police ranks Indo-Canadian gangs at number three in terms of strength in British Columbia, only behind biker gangs and Asian criminal organizations such as the Triads and Vietnamese drug clans. Many of these violent gangs have a significant presence of people from the immigrant Punjabi community, mainly Sikhs. Based on police and media reports of those who are Indo-Canadian gang affiliated in the Lower Mainland, the vast majority of the murdered and suspected murderers appear to have Punjabi origin names and Indian Sikh ancestry. Although, you know, it's police reports, it's news reports. And so, you know, I don't know. Take it Can with a grain really of salt. Can we really trust it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with names like Red Scorpions, Independent Soldiers and United Nations, these gangs have members from all ethnic groups, but Sikhs comprise a sizable chunk. The Indo-Canadian gangs have grown in size over the years with increasing violence. Indo-Canadian gangs consist of people from a broad spectrum, including wealthy and educated families. Most Indo-Canadian gang-affiliated youth are young males between the ages of 16 to 29 who were raised in two-parent homes in middle-class to upper-class neighborhoods and who have the potential to excel both academically and professionally. But there's a big but. (laughs) According to a 2001 statistics Canada report on the Indo-Canadian community in Canada, Indo-Canadian youth and young adults were more likely to attend high school and obtain post-secondary education than their Canadian peers. Canadian adults of Indo-Canadian origin were more likely to have a university degree and twice as likely to have a postgraduate degree than the rest of the Canadian population. However, Statistics Canada findings showed that although they are just as likely to be employed, Canadians of South 
Asian origin had lower incomes than the national average. So they are highly educated but underemployed, meaning they have to work harder and longer to get by. That's that's the the age-old truth for any BIPOC individual in a Western country. You work twice as hard to get half as far. And that's why we're so tired. And uh, (laughs) pissed off. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Gang membership in cities such as Toronto, Chicago, Los Angeles, and London is driven by low socioeconomic status, intergenerational affiliation, and limited access to legitimate opportunities. The gang-affiliated Indo-Canadian youth in the Lower Mainland do not reflect these traditional characteristics. Indo-Canadian gang members appear to join gangs for wealth, status, and power, and for a sense of belonging rather than out of necessity. Many of these gang members are middle class, have supportive non-criminal families, and have many opportunities to avoid criminal lifestyles, except for all those marginalized and economic uh, disenfranchisements from the government. But this Besides that, um, many lead double lives as students or working professionals, possibly to appease their parents, who may otherwise think that they are, quote, doing nothing with their life, end quote. Indo-Canadian youth may have supportive families. However, they may not feel connected to their parents' religious, cultural, or traditional attitudes, beliefs, or opinions. When parents have to work long hours, they are often unavailable for their children, so they are less available to pass on their values and culture norms to their children. Yeah, and I mean, the, the immigrant mentality, I and I just speak from my own um, immigrant parent experience, is work, 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 put right. your head down, work, 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 shut the fuck up, <laughs> work, yeah. work, work. Yeah. And at the end of it, did you die? They keep working, work, work, work. Uh, <laughs> um, and and uh, yeah, sometimes uh, it's not unusual for parents to um, be working multiple jobs. And as a result, the youth, the youth, the youth, them, the youth, <laughs> the youth them uh, are, um, you know, the, uh, who's going to lead? Who's going to lead them? Who's yeah, going to guide yeah. them? So um, with little supervision in the home, poor attachment, both in the home and in school, an overemphasis on the importance of financial success and a lack of positive role models, the draw to gang life is appealing to teens and young adults who are seeking out connections, particularly if those connections come with financial gain and increased status. And let's face it, not having to work their asses off to get it like they saw their parents doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And youths who are accustomed to receiving negative feedback from school administrators and parents for their unacceptable behavior may have these same behaviors positively rewarded through money and status and gang culture, where academic success is irrelevant and delinquent behavior is acceptable. In addition, some young Indo-Canadian males involved in criminal activities had exposure to the gang lifestyle through older siblings or cousins. Renu Bakshi, a reporter with CTV in Vancouver who comes from a Punjabi background, traces the violence in the Punjabi gangs to a, quote, boys will be boys type of attitude with Punjabi culture. According to Bakshi, Punjabi parents and relatives mourn the the birth of a girl, the birth of a girl, but celebrate when a boy has been born. Boys are treated as, quote, unquote, kings of the castle and allowed free reign 
while girls are raised under a microscope of discipline and fear. Quote, the Punjabi boys grow up in a testosterone-fueled environment run by an iron-fisted patriarch. In too many cases, violence is the tool with which the head of the household settles disputes with his wife, as well as other members of the family. Eventually, a young boy will become a young man and step into a community that thrives on bravado, a world where everything is a grudge match, a fight to the finish, unquote. Ooh, sounds exhausting. Uh, <laughs> according to Bakshi, Sikhism is a religion designed to promote equality among people. Although it evolved into a warrior religion, it is it was intended to uphold bravery in the face of evil. But the very essence of Sikhism, its spiritual struggle for human rights, quote, has been perverted by misguided men bent on gaining power and exacting revenge, unquote. Well, that's, I mean, the root of all the problems yeah. in this world. So <laughs> everybody uh, taking religion and fucking it up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, you should. We should copy and paste this sentence and put it in every, in every single yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> 3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls Find the best stories and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. So now we're going to get into Bal Buttar's early life. Hit it, Beth. Baljeet Singh Buttar was born on December 11th, 1975. He was the middle child of three brothers, older brother Manny, and the baby of the family, Kelly. Bal grew up in Richmond, B.C., just outside of Vancouver. According to Manny Amar, who later worked with Bal Buttar on a book and a film as a child, Bal longed to pursue the arts, but his father was not on board with that. And he disrespected and humiliated Bal for even thinking about it. There were also reports of violence in his home. Bal was involved in petty crime as a teenager. He later said that he was attracted to the criminal world because he was neurodivergent and struggled with attention deficit disorder. In school, he was often bullied and teased. He also wore a turban and the other kids would taunt him in the schoolyard, calling him names. I mean, that's that just sounds typical traumatized, yeah. typical, but really traumatizing. Yeah. I don't know if enough credit is given to um 
how different it can be to have to, um, as a child, navigate white spaces with other white kids who might be hearing things from their parents and repeating it to you and your parents, your parents are busy working. Your immigrant parents are busy working. So what, what am I supposed to do with people making fun of me for what I am? Yeah. It's not like I have a booger on my face. I can wipe it off. This is, this is me. This is my skin. This is, yeah, this is who I am. So, um, I don't think enough credit is given to how traumatizing that can be. Yeah. So here I am giving it all it deserves uh (laughs) he uh compensated by getting uh tough and instilling fear in others around him quote i learned how to give attention to people by giving them fear and then with fear they would listen to me whatever i would tell them to do they would do unquote it started out with fist fights and then knives and guns entered the picture Mm. he was charged and convicted of extortion kidnapping and unlawful confinement he did stints in youth detention and a wilderness program. Buttar's mother once told a police officer that her three sons were quote-unquote warriors. Those wilderness programs. Those, um, are, those are nuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've been listening to uh, Camp uh, Hell, I think it's called, about Camp Anawiki in Georgia. Yeah. Um, and they were just a hotbed for child abuse. Yes, they were counterproductive. Absolutely. And I don't <laughs> I don't know a lot about the wilderness programs in Canada, but I my spidey sense is saying they were great. <laughs> Uh, So now we're going to get into the timeline. So Bhutar's criminal connections became much more serious after he met Bhupinder Bindi Singh Johal, a member of the Vancouver gang Los Diablos. In the 1960s, Los Diablos were a a Latinx gang, uh, but became more multi-ethnic over the years. But by the late 80s, its members were mostly, almost exclusively, of South Asian descent. At the time Johal joined, Los Diablos was being run by the Indo-Canadian brothers Ron and Jimmy Dosange. The Dosange brothers were are believed to have run one of the first organized Indo-Canadian gangs in Vancouver in the early 1990s. Ron was the brains and Jimmy was the muscle. They bought narcotics in bulk and used a network of dealers to distribute cocaine to customers all across the city. Bindi Johal started out as a drug dealer in Los Diablos, selling drugs. Uh, And Joe Howell once said, quote, I was a small time drug dealer. He was a big time guy, meaning Jimmy. Wherever we went, we got respect because everyone was afraid of him. He was a big shot. And when I was beside him, I was a big shot, unquote. Now, my understanding, too, is Joe Hall, that he has a whole ass Wikipedia page. Yeah. Uh, He's got a big Wikipedia page. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll get it. I'll get to it. More of my takeaways. But he was really admired, especially by um, kids who saw themselves in him. Right, right. So, but in 1991, Jimmy Dosange was arrested for the murder of a Colombian cocaine trafficker named Teodora Salcedo. With Dosange in jail awaiting trial, Johal and a Los Diablos associate, Faisal Dean, decided to go out on their own. 
They began buying cocaine in bulk and selling it on the streets in direct competition with Ron Dosange and Los Diablos. Some of the Los Diablos defected to the new organization run by Dean and Johal, which they called the Indo-Canadian Mafia or the Punjabi Mafia. Johal became the notorious gangster that he aspired to be when he was working under Jimmy Dosange. He was the most feared gangster in British Columbia. And he really enjoyed the infamy. And he became a regular at nightclubs in Vancouver. At the time, Joe Hall was earning approximately seventy to ninety thousand dollars a week. Whoa! <laughs> in nineties money? Yeah. Wow. Through various <laughs> illegal activities, including murder for hire, debt collecting, and drug dealing. Jimmy Dosange was released from prison after witnesses at his preliminary hearing for the murder of Teodoro Salcido refused to identify him in court. And Jimmy was pissed. He <laughs> took out a contract on Bindi Johal's life. Johal caught wind of it, though, and was able to find out who the hitman was. Using back-channel communication, he offered to pay the hitman twice the price to double-cross Jimmy Dosange. Double for the double-cross! Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the hitman told Dosange that he had a shipment of stolen electronics that he wanted to offload. They set up a meeting in an alley, and when Dosange arrived to view the stolen goods, cars blocked off the ends of the alley, boxing him in. Then gunmen started shooting. They shoot in. Oh, made you look. You were slave to the page of my rhyme book. Anyway, evidence that he was not expecting this at all was a lit cigarette that was found still smoldering on the ground beside Dosange's body when the police arrived. Then, in one of the stupidest media moves <laughs> ever, oh, uh -huh. <laughs> in April of 1994, CTV NewsHour invited Bindi Johal and Ron Dosange on air to threaten like, each other. Like W like WWE? <laughs> I don't think they were in the same room. I think they were interviewed separately. But hey, uh, brother. <laughs> Bindi Johal said, quote, This Jimmy Dosange, they portrayed him as a hitman, this, that. I guess he was a very serious person. From what I've seen of him on the street, I don't think he could hit his way out of a paper bag, unquote. Oh man. <laughs> At the time of the interview, Jimmy Dosange was dead. And Whoop. Bindi Johal was the prime murder suspect. Wow. <laughs> that escalated very fast. Very quickly, yeah. Ron Dosange was also involved on tele or invited on television to offer his perspective. Ron said, quote, can you smell what the rock is cooking? <laughs> Just kidding. He said, Bindi, I'm here and I'm bad mouthing you, buddy. If anybody's a nobody, buddy, it's you. A lot of buddies. <laughs> Maybe that's why your life is worth a loony on the streets. I wouldn't shoot you in the back. I'd do it face to face, square in the forehead, unquote. <laughs> so I, I have to uh, explain for our U.S. listeners that a loony is a dollar. Oh, <laughs> well, OK, OK. That yeah, <laughs> really paints the picture. I understand completely what he's saying. So, yeah, there's a, a loon on their uh, dollar. And so the, the slang for a dollar is a loony. Is it now? <laughs> yeah. Canadians, huh? Am I right? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> and that was Canadian Culture Corner. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Gang violence then escalated. There were nightclub shootings, drive-by shootings, and shootings in the street. Then two weeks after the television interviews, Ron Dosange was murdered in a drive-by shooting while he was waiting for a traffic light to change. 
Mm. The shooter pulled up beside his truck and opened fire with an AR-10 assault rifle in broad daylight. Television news videos showed paramedics working to save him as he lay sprawled out in the grass where his truck had crashed and he'd been pulled out. Five days after that, Glenn Olson, a neighbor that Johal had asked to dog sit for him for a few weeks while he was in hiding, was shot to death. No! He was just babysitting the dog? Yes. Oh, Olson no. took the dog out to the park, and a hit squad opened fire on him at, with assault rifles. I'm sorry. They killed the dog as well? I don't know if they killed the dog, too, but they definitely killed the dog walker. Okay. Still terrible. Yeah. 24 shell casings from an AK-47 were found at the crime scene. To quote a Medium article, quote, When dog walkers are getting gunned down and broadcasters are interviewing murderers on the evening news, your city might have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Bindi Joe Hall was charged but acquitted in the murders of Jimmy and Ron Dosange. Joe Hall emerged as a hero, a celebrity gangster. Quote, all of a sudden, this behavior was glorified. If kids wanted to make a name for themselves and settle schoolyard fights, they saw this as the way to do it. Unquote. In early 1996, a criminal associate of Joe Hall's bought two kilograms of cocaine from a teenager named Randy Chan, the younger brother of Raymond Chan, a high-ranking member of the Lotus Gang. The cocaine had been diluted, and Joe Hall took it as a personal affront. So he stuffed Chan into the trunk of his car. As you do. (laughs) As one does. (laughs) For the next 56 hours, Bindi drove around the city negotiating the terms of Chan's release. Eventually, Chan was released in exchange for five kilograms of cocaine. Joe Hall was arrested, though, on a charge of unlawful confinement. Hmm. While awaiting trial, Joe Hall shared a cell with Bal Buttar, and they took a liking to one another. Interesting. Now, in jail, Buttar pledged his allegiance to Joe Hall. Quote, we became fully brothers, unquote. Joe Hall began grooming Buttar for a position in the gang. After he got out of jail, he took Buttar, then just 150 pounds, to the gym regularly and gave him steroids. Oh, what a guy. <laughs> Buttar packed on 100 pounds. Both Buttar and another associate named Roman Mann, nicknamed Danny, had major roles in Joe Hall's organization. Buttar said Mann was in charge of about 15 men who handled the drug trafficking wing of the business. Buttar had a 20-person crew. That is a lot of people yeah. to supervise. Involved in a variety of mafia-like crimes. One scheme involved buying totaled luxury cars. Buttar's crew would remove the ignition and vehicle registration number, then just have the cars crushed. Then his crew would steal the same type of car, change the ignition and VIN number, then sell it at auction. What a scam! Yeah. The profit margin was somewhere around twelve to fourteen thousand dollars per car. That's that's a, that's a pretty good scam. That's a hell of a scam. And yeah. if I wasn't afraid of going to jail, I would do it too. <laughs> Another one of the branches of the business was the Elite, a five-member murder-for-hire squad, which would get between 15000 to 20000 per killing. Johal controlled the Elite, but would pass that control to Buttar and others at various times. Now this, what I'm going to say, I know is very stupid. But I just finished watching the... Black Widow movie about this female assassin in the Marvel comic universe. Right. And I was like, God damn it. How come no nobody ever recruited me to be an assassin? <laughs> I would be so good at it. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, here I am podcasting instead. By yeah, the podcasting is su- <laughs> more fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so by the summer and fall of 1998, Joe Hall was becoming erratic. He ripped off some of his own associates and people were losing confidence in him, including Butar. In addition, Butar began noticing that Johal was using the elite to settle personal beefs. On July 1st, 1998, Butar claimed that he arranged for the murder of Venus News Mackenzie on Johal's orders. Butar later said that Johal told him that Mackenzie was holding out cash from the organization and that's why the hit was made. But Butar suspected that Johal was really fighting with Mackenzie over a girl. <laughs> mm, never trust a big button to smile. That girl is poison. Uh, so Roman Danny Mann wanted out of the gang. But when he told Johal, Johal punched him in the face. Then on November 29th, 1998, Mann, 22 years old, was found murdered in New Westminster. 22. That's so that, young. Yeah, that yeah. is so young. Mm-hmm. On September 19th, 1998, Butar and some friends were out at a nightclub. They'd all been drinking and one of the friends, a gang associate named Derek Shankar, 19, decided to call Johal and ask him to join them. Johal said he was too tired to go out, so Shankar cussed him out and called him a baby. At the end of the night, when the they arrived home, Johal was waiting for them. After identifying Shankar in the back seat, Johal hopped into the truck and told Butar that he wanted to go for a ride. They drove to a secluded spot where Johal told Butar to stop so he could get out of the car and take a piss. As he left the vehicle, he dragged Shankar out with him and shot him. Butar was shocked. He'd known Derek Shankar for years, and they were both from Richmond. Butar never fully trusted Johal again after that night. Butar later said, quote, When Derek Shankar went down, Bindi's whole brigade went down. You know what I mean? He took down one of the best kids, unquote. Like it's his fantasy football team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so on, he took out one of the best kids, one of the best players <laughs> on uh on December 5th, 1998, Bindi and Butar were driving to a nightclub when Johal made an illegal turn and was pulled over by the police. Johal pulled out a gun and told Butar to tell the cops that the firearm was his. Possession of the weapon would have breached Johal's probation and he would have faced eight or nine months on remand. Butar later said that it struck him as strange because Johal had always been very careful not to carry firearms unless he planned to use them. And in that moment, Butar believed that Johal was planning to murder him that night. Butar took the gun and agreed to plead guilty, but he didn't do it out of loyalty. He did it because the incarceration would provide a perfect alibi for Johal's murder. <laughs> Butar claimed that the elite was now taking orders from him because of the increasing distrust of Johal. Quote, when Bindi was getting reckless, I took over the elite. I told them to get him. I gave them $20,000, unquote. And at 4.30 a.m. on December 20th, 1998, Bindi Johal was shot behind the right ear at close range on the dance floor at Palladium Nightclub in downtown Vancouver. (gasps) He was 27 years old. Mm -hmm. Over 300 witnesses were on hand when the murder took place, but no one came forward to identify the shooter. It's a murder on the dance floor. <laughs> Jube and I kill the groove. TJ, gonna burn this goddamn house right down. 
uh, I wonder if that song was playing. Probably not, but um, <laughs> you never know. Uh, you never know. Yeah. Now, Butar later explained, quote, if I hadn't killed him, he would have got me. I had no choice, unquote. Butar said he also used the elite a few times more after he took over Johal's criminal empire. He admitted to being the middleman who arranged for the elite to kill 25-year-old Kuldip Singh in September of 1999. Constable Doug Spencer had many dealings with Butar during his years as a Vancouver PD gang specialist. Quote, I knew he was an extremely violent hitman who did all of Bindi's collecting and killing. Self-admitted. He carried a reputation all over the lower mainland. Everyone knew him, Spencer said. Unquote. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just looking up what a constable was and why I should care. Oh, it's a police officer. Oh, okay. I'll put my phone down. According to Constable Spencer, Butar's gang was, quote, the first that went right out there and was ripping off other drug dealers on a regular basis. They also started a taxing thing. If you didn't pay them the tax, you couldn't sell your drugs in the area, unquote. On August 3rd, 2001, Butar's close friend Gary Rye offered to take him to a salon to get his legs waxed. (laughs) (laughs) That, what a guy, what a friend, steroids, leg waxing, the works. According to Butar, quote, I was into bodybuilding. Gary took me there and was on the phone all day and I didn't pay attention to him, unquote. According to Butar, he later learned that Rye had collaborated with some of his other former associates, Tyler Hariluk, and a gangster Butar would only call the teeth because <laughs> he he was still alive and had never been charged. He said the teeth had been operating as Butar's driver and fallen in love with Butar's girlfriend. The woman and the teeth decided to take Butar out. Now, remember, this is all coming from Butar, so I don't know how true this is, but this is what he said. Okay, got it. All right. Hariluk agreed to be the shooter because Butar had thrown him out of the organization over his drug use. Butar later said, quote, when you're initiated into this gang, we have, you can't do drugs. You can drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, but no drugs at all. Tyler Hariluk became a junkie. Hmm. Butar and Rai were both shot at the salon. Rai was killed. Butar, who had been shot twice in the head, survived. Butar did not remember seeing the shooter or knowing what was happening. What he did recall was hearing a sound like a wrestling bell and then waking up in darkness. Butar was paralyzed from the chest down and blind. Quote, but after a month or two, I got used to my new life. I was in a lot of pain. I was crying a lot. I can't believe it happened to me. I am not dead or alive. I am right in the middle. Why did God do this? I don't know why. Unquote. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, funny thing. What goes around comes around. Um, So on August 20th, 2001, Tyler Hariluk, 22, was found shot dead in Burnaby. Butar said his crew killed Hariluk in revenge for his shooting. On December 22nd, 2001, Kelly Butar, Ball's brother, uh, he was also 22, was gunned down at a Richmond wedding reception. What? Yeah. Bob Butar said the hit on his brother was arranged by cocaine trafficker Robbie Candola, who wrongly believed that Kelly was selling drugs on his turf. Butar's mother and older brother Manny came to the hospital and told him that Kelly had been murdered. Kelly's body was just a few floors below in the same hospital. Wow. 
um, that must have been extremely difficult, difficult for yeah. their mother. Yeah. Um, Buttar said he last turned to the elite in the spring of 2002, looking for revenge for the murder of Kelly. The elite took out Jaksaran Singh Chima on March 18th, 2002, because he was suspected of being one of the shooters. And on June 23rd, 2002, the elite gunned down Robbie Candola outside his apartment because Buttar believed that he ordered Kelly's execution. In a series of interviews with a Vancouver Sun reporter that began in 2004, Buttar admitted to arranging the execution of Bindi Johal. But he claimed he found God and wanted to steer kids away from the violent path he had chosen. Buttar said, quote, My whole crew vanished. In two years, my whole crew was gone, unquote. And he said he didn't fear the consequence of his confessions because his severe medical needs meant he couldn't go to jail. <laughs> Get out of jail free card. Uh, he was never charged in any of those murders. But Buttar's reformation did not last long. In 2007, despite being bedridden and hospitalized, he attempted to arrange a hitman for a woman who wanted to kill her husband. Oh. According to court documents, Mina Jual, a 30-year-old Surrey medical office assistant, and Buttar began planning the murder of Navtev Singh Jual in July of 2006. They tried to get another person to commit the murder. The previous month, Buttar told a reporter at The Sun that he'd been visited by police who threatened to put him in jail for talking with an acquaintance about arranging a hit. Buttar said he was extremely frightened by the visit, which he said must have resulted because his phone was bugged. And he told the Sun reporter that the conversation in question was misconstrued. Of course. <laughs> they got it all wrong. <laughs> I didn't say I wanted to hit on something. I said I wanted to. You misunderstood me. I said I wanted to sit. Sit on, on somebody. somebody. Yes. 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 There you go. <laughs> but Mina I said I wanted to I wanted to take a shit Yeah <laughs> Miscon Completely misconstrued I said I fell in a pit <laughs> That's a good one That's good. You win You win this round but Mina Jual and Buttar were arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. He was under arrest at the long-term care facility in which he has lived since being shot in the head. Juhal went to jail. Both Buttar and Juhal pleaded guilty. Buttar was given a four-month conditional sentence and continued to live in the long-term care facility. But he was also put on probation for three years and was given a lifetime ban on owning firearms. But he did not get any jail time. Juhal was sentenced to seven years in prison. Uh, so usually we'd get into an investigation and a trial. However, there was none. So next, <laughs> now we're going to get into where are they now? Hit it, Beth. Buttar lived his final years in a long-term care facility, listening to shows on television and receiving very few visitors. Mm -hmm. He told the Vancouver Sun he still had bullet fragments embedded in his brain. His speech was often slurred, and he struggled to move his head from side to side. Constable Doug Spencer, who does presentations about the dangers of gang life, said Buttar was the poster child of the worst possible fate. And in November of 2011, Bal Buttar died in the long-term care facility after suffering an infection. He was only 35 years old. So Gangsters young. do not live long. Yeah, yeah. Across the 
across the board. Yes. A lot of these kids were like late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. nuts. I mean, even I mean, I'm just thinking even in like, you know, here in the United States, um, gangsters, even former gangsters, like, you know, the, the ones who turn into rappers. Right. King Von. Remember King Von and, and Jakaira? We talked about I just so many died right. so young. Yeah. Um, it's sad. Mm-hmm. Police called the quote drawn out demise of the notorious gangster, unquote, the end of an era. They said the ruthless way Joe Hall, Buttar, and their contemporaries dealt with each other in the 1990s spurred on the current generation of violent gangsters who take to the public streets to resolve their conflicts. And Indo-Canadian gang violence continues to be a problem in Vancouver. On April 17, 2021, Harb Dwaliwal, a Brothers Keeper member, was shot to death in front of a restaurant. And on May 9, 2021, Carmen Gruwal, a 28-year-old associated with the United Nations gang, was executed by suspected rivals outside the main terminal of the Vancouver International Airport. Right in front of the airport. That's that. Uh, that is that is ballsies. Yes, that is brazen. That is something. Hmm. So now we're going to get into what we think made Butar snap and our takeaways. Well, what do you think, Beth? Well, I had no idea Indo-Canadian gangs were a thing. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Same. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating story that I knew nothing about going in. Mm-hmm. And what struck out to me in the story was, like we were talking about, the ages of the people involved. They were all really young. Right. And the brazenness and violence of the crimes for what mm-hmm. seemed like really petty things, like yes. jealousy over girls, somebody mm-hmm. disrespected someone else, just mm-hmm. Really stupid reasons to kill someone. Right. And they had no problem killing people in broad daylight at weddings in front of the airport. It's just yeah, insane. The? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the media definitely did not help when they gave these guys the attention that they craved. I also think it's interesting how these Indo-Canadian guys that get involved in gang life are not what you think of as typical at-risk teens for joining gangs. And I, mm-hmm. I read a lot of stuff about uh, why people think this is. Okay, and talk to me. There was just a lot of information. Uh, yes. So I don't know for sure, but uh, it sounds like a lot of different elements are at play, including racism and culture rather than poverty. But um, I mean, these people weren't poor, but mm-hmm. uh, they were working their asses off. So that's an element. Yeah. But the alternative of working your ass off would be pro- probably poverty. Be poverty. Right. Yeah. So I think I th- I think it's all um, it's related. all yeah. related. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking that immigrant poverty is different than white poverty and BIPOC poverty is different than than white poverty because it is literally by design. There right. were there were um, policies and structures in place to prevent immigrants and black and brown people of color in this part of the world and <laughs> in the United States from um, moving upward socially, even from entering the country. They left the whole the boat in the dock for two months. <laughs> two months yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and Indo-Canadian mafia. What? <laughs> mafia? Mafia? I was I was <laughs> I was listening to uh, a, a podcast like documentary. It might have been the video one that you saw, but I heard it in podcast form. And um, I had to rewind it several times when I heard Canadian mafia. Indo-Canadian <laughs> yeah. mafia. What? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, also, I feel bad for the child that Butar was, yeah. you know, a, a first generation kid of immigrant who looked different. Um, also, his brain worked differently than other kids, uh, given his ADHD and neurodivergence. Right. Um, and he probably could have been an amazing artist um, and, you know, and person if he had had adequate support at home in school. Right. Right. Um, but he didn't. And uh, the way I see it, he uh, I, I believe he had to be become hard quote-unquote hard in order to survive yeah um and once in that life it was clearly difficult to get out of yeah. it alive yeah um and it um was interesting to me that they didn't allow gang members to do drugs right uh they don't get high on their own supply however they're bringing this poison into their own communities yeah. and you know preying on people's pain is right it, it just is like a it's all about the loonies yeah those loonies <laughs> god damn it <laughs> the loonies i i laughed so hard my headphones blew off my head hang on <laughs> let me let me get back into the groove here. <laughs> oh, loonies, man. That, that's another takeaway. I didn't didn't know what a loony was, and now I do. Um, <laughs> also interesting is the gang violence uh, that continues. Um, Indo-Canadian sought criminal activity as a means to fast success and money, these glamorized lifestyles, uh, and to curb racial discrimination, which makes you feel incredibly small, and worthless right. and meaningless in a, in a society. And so everywhere where you're like all the messages say you're nothing because of what you look like and what you get to join this gang and be something, be something uh -huh. and, and have some power over your life and it, other yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. And so those social problems, people, people think that racism is something we should just get over. We're all children of God, but it, it's not, it's, it, we might be, but these cis, these, um, uh, they still exist. Policies yeah. and systems still exist that are harming people right. and not, um, there's been no, um, an apology wouldn't be enough, right? There has to be more to fix the Pro the social problems caused by would be good. <laughs> recognition would be good, but a social problems that are um, perpetuated by white supremacist systems um, that make that leave room for gangs to exist. Right. Um, and uh, so the violence is getting worse and worse and worse. Those reports at the end of our story were just in May and June. Y'all, yeah, we, yeah. we are in July. It's still uh, going on. Still going on, which is not surprising me to me because there's been nothing to correct correct um these white supremacist systems right um bindi's story uh bindi johal wow what a story yeah. and there yeah. was so much there um and we could have done a full episode on him alone right um, i think but anyway this was all very interesting so this was fun yeah i enjoyed this one me too Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So we got an email from E said, hi, Wendy and Beth. A friend of mine uh, recently got burgled, even though they live in an up story apartment via the fire escape. Looking into ways to prevent this, you can buy window security film at, a, at any hardware store and attach it to windows yourself. It reinforces the windows and prevents smashing or shattering. Wow. Now she goes on to add, or you know what? They didn't say what their pronouns were, so I don't know. They said in Michelle McNamara's book about the Golden State Killer, some houses reportedly were not targeted because they had the type of windows that open outwards with a crank. Remember? <laughs> you remember? Yeah. I don't know if they make those anymore. <laughs> I, I have some in my house. Do you yeah. now? Well, yeah. that must be why you're still with us. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> because the opening is much narrower than the typical yeah. windows that open it's up true. and down or side yep. to side. As uh, you've mentioned before, there are also relatively affordable window alarms, extra window locks, or pin locks that are kind of DIY, kind of a DIY installation for making windows safer. And this window security film tip is fucking fire and if you'll excuse me uh so i went to the google isha machine and checked and found at amazon or walmart.com or at home depot or other hardware stores that you can walk into like physically take your feet and walk into the store Uh, yeah it's craziness um but on amazon i found a 24 inch by 12 foot window security film um for 26.99 and that had uv protection which is great for arizona very cool but um yeah an excellent excellent tip so thank you so much e um we appreciate it now we're gonna get on to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by or about any marginalized, othered, or underrepresented groups. I just wanted to say, if you have not seen Dr. Death on Peacock yet, what the fuck are you doing with your life? <laughs> Get it together, people. Yeah, it's amazing. It was really good. Yeah. So obviously, really good cast. We're all friends here, right? We've all listened to the podcast. Now, right. if you ask me, Dr. Death season one was better than Dr. Death season two. Don't, yes. don't, don't at me. It's just my thoughts. Um, yeah, I agree. And uh, the show did not disappoint one nope. bit. First of all, is his name Joshua Jackson? Dawson's Creek, the white guy from Dawson's Creek, who was married. I have no idea. Married to one of the most beautiful black women in the world. Uh, she was in Queen and Slim. I'm forgetting her name also. But anyway, any white guy who treats a black woman like a human being with respect <laughs> is okay in my book. So I loved it even more because that guy was in it. Um, and uh, the also the Murder Accountability Project. Uh, if you go to murderdata.org, you can see if there is a serial killer active in your area. Oh, and, wow. Uh, civilians can use this. Um, and it is the impetus for the... A murder accountability project 
which is now a podcast called Algorithm that deals with um, the tools that authorities can use to catch serial killers. And they um, I've been in and out of the podcast, but I actually listened to uh, an episode of uh, The Fall Line where they interviewed the creator of this algorithm. And he was on the scene during like the Atlanta child murders and was like, there's something going on here. And he's like, there's an unexplained high number of, of deaths all under similar circumstances in different parts of the country. You just have to put this information together um, and notify your local law enforcement. So civilians can use it. Check out murderdata.org and also listen to the podcast algorithm to see how, how it comes into play. So what do you got? Yeah. Well, uh, this is also from Eve, uh, the person who emailed the security film tip. Oh, yes. And they said, Corinne Rice Graycloud mm-hmm. at Miss Corinne 86 on Instagram mm-hmm. is a really amazing indigenous activist, journalist and educator. I agree completely. Yeah. She educates people about cultural appropriation, fetishization of indigenous women and missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two spirit people people. Mm -hmm. Many parts of American culture tend to refer to indigenous communities in the past and overlook current indigenous communities. Her work and social media presence are important in addition to her advocacy in supporting indigenous communities and intersectionality today. So that's Corinne Rice Graycloud at Miss Corinne 86 on Instagram. uh, She deserves an immediate follow. Um, yes. yes. Uh, also, Dr. Death on Peacock, the Murder Accountability Project, murderdata.org, and the podcast Algorithm. There you go. Well, this has been so fun. As we said, we are taking a break. We will miss you all. Yes. Um, but in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us and our back catalog? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. This is a weekly podcast. And even though we'll be on a break, we will be dropping some new episodes for you every Thursday as usual. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.